Hi, everybody, and welcome back to Under the Radar. I'm your host, Frank Fear. Today, we're going to continue our discussion with Bill Rizzo on the topic of making democracy work as it should. For me, the big takeaway from yesterday's chat with Bill is that it is possible to find common ground and make democracy work as it should. Bill offered several examples of how communities came together, often in surprising ways, to reach agreement and advance community well-being. Those experiences included aha moments as citizens and public officials figured out new and sometimes unexpected settling places. They went, to put it glibly, where they hadn't gone before. A lot of what Bill talked about is a credit to the work of local extension educators, those professionals who serve communities as facilitators and enablers of local development. And Bill and I both know there's more to the story. So Bill is back for part two of our podcast. Bill has more case examples, and then he'll share guidelines for achieving similar success in your community. It is possible to have democracy work as it should, and you have proof, Bill. It's great to have you back on Under the Radar. Well, it's good to be back for part two of our conversation, Frank. I'm looking forward to it. Great, Bill. Very pleased to have you at that end. And uh, one of the things, again, as I said in my intro that struck me, uh, were the stories that you told, the case examples of uh, of when democracy uh, is working the way it should. So I know you've got plenty of those. And later on, you're going to talk about a case that didn't go so well. But could you start with a, with a case, another case of when democracy worked the way it should? Sure. Um, see, I... I uh worked with a, a village in uh, the southern part of Dane County. Um, it was uh, the village of Oregon. Uh, and uh, yeah, back then, there was uh, comprehensive planning requirements across the state of Wisconsin, and so that kind of defines the environment that the story unfolds within. Um, so the uh, village president uh, wanted to create a comprehensive plan that was a requirement of law, but he wanted to do that in the form of a community strategic plan. He invited me in to design and guide the planning process because he was familiar with my work. So I agreed to do that under the condition that the group that I put together to do this be citizen-centric uh, and that it reach out to citizens. And in fact, uh, he agreed to do that and I put out a call for citizen planners to step forward, and I believe we had 11 responses, and all 11 of those individuals were appointed to an ad hoc planning committee that uh, joined a number of other uh, individuals from the village uh, to form a committee of 17, 11 of which were community members. So we decided to convene a set of meetings. And it didn't take me long to recognize that as soon as we convened, my big challenge as the process facilitator would be to help people understand that their job on that committee was not to look out for their particular interests, but to look out for the community interests. And the way that I defined that was to tell them that their job was to take the pulse of the community instead of being the pulse of the community. Uh, to do that, I, I really had to challenge their roles uh, as positions, as people who had gotten new positions of power, 
but it wasn't uh, an easy task, and it took a number of meetings and a few weeks to do that. However, when I finally convinced them of their proper roles on that in that committee, that's when we really started to make some real progress. We put together a plan for getting valid public input uh, using a number of well-known, well-established public engagement methods. Uh, the first thing we did was hold general vision meetings across the community. I believe we had seven of them. And we asked a single question, which was, what did you want, what do you want this community to look like in 15 years? It's just a single question. Um, and so we had pretty good attendance at those. None of these meetings, by the way, were held in the village hall. They were all held out in locations throughout the community. Um, we used those meetings to obviously gather the responses, but we also wanted to understand who some of the key informant groups, the communities of interest were in uh, that village. So we, we did that. Based on what we learned about those community, communities of interest, we established focus groups um, to dig a little deeper into the interests that people had behind what they said they wanted that community to look like. So we had essentially at that point two, two pieces of data. One were the, the general responses to the vision meetings and the other were these more detailed focus group meeting um, responses. We then took all of that data and we gave it to the uh, University of Wisconsin River Falls Survey Research Lab, which is a very highly credible um, source of, of designing research and surveys for uh, extension people and others throughout the state, and we asked them to create a questionnaire for us. Uh, there were, I believe, 10,000 people in the village, so we couldn't survey them all, so we designed a, a sample survey uh, that gave us a 95% um, confidence interval, which we felt very, very comfortable with. Um, this group then decided to spend a dedicated 30 days to promoting the survey, and they did that in a number of ways. They established a, a project newsletter that they distributed every week. They also put signs at the entrances to the village that asked people to look out for their surveys when they came. So they took the, the survey very seriously. They knew it was probably going to be their best shot to get some good public opinion data. Uh, and uh, they actually uh, surprised even themselves, and they got an 85% return rate on the survey, which was uh, really fantastic. Anybody who's done survey work understands how good that is. Um, we then gave all those survey results back to the survey research lab, uh, and they, uh, in turn, converted them into a series of uh, uh, basically statements of what they learned and gave that to the village council who took all of those statements, all of the, that data, and turned them into a series of planning recommendations. So the, uh, the end on this is that the comprehensive plan as put together by this citizen-driven community passed the village board unanimously. Um, and it was a pretty, pretty well-divided board before all this happened, but I think they were all comfortable with the methods that were used to put the survey together, uh, and so they were very comfortable with the results that they got, and they felt that they really needed to be responsive to what they felt was uh, a credible reflection of uh, the public's views. Uh, and uh, not long after that, the village president took the survey results uh, and the plan to the county executive, who had a an ongoing program of awarding 
funds to communities to support various infrastructure projects, one of which was bike trail development. And one of the major uh, planning objectives that came out through this survey, through this plan, was that the people in this village wanted to do or wanted to have more opportunities for bicycling. So the county executive awarded the village a quarter of a million dollars for additional bike trail development to connect to the county's bike trail system. And then also, I, and I thought this was pretty interesting, and I certainly didn't anticipate it, but uh, two or three members of the committee who had never had any public roles before decided to run for public office, uh, two for the village board, I believe, and one for the plan commission, and I believe they were all successful. So there, it was, you know, it was a great story, uh, and there were a number of lessons um, learned, and I think for me the first one was that um, citizens often come to a role like this um, kind of from a background of being disempowered. So when they have some newfound power, they tend to, to want to use it for their interests. Um, so uh, I had to really challenge them to think about this whole idea of taking the pulse of the community instead of being the pulse of the community. Uh, and I think they finally got that. And when they did, they really started to get some traction. Um, I think the, cult, the culture of local governance can re redefine these roles of, of citizens and of officials, uh, that they can, they can do things differently, that there is no rule that says that they have to behave in a certain way. Uh, and they can, they can certainly kind of blend their roles in, especially in an ad hoc uh, process like this. Uh, I, I learned that more representative decisions um, come out of more informed public officials. And uh, oftentimes people discover that their interests are shared with the community beyond what they consider to be their own. I think it requires credible leaders, and certainly in this case, uh, the village president and the village administrator, who was very active in this process, were uh, seen as, as very credible in the communities. The president had been a principal, I believe, at the local middle school, uh, and they had all uh, pursued their, their responsibilities in ways that over time lended a lot of credibility to what they wanted to do. And they were willing to share power, which not all officials like to do. But again, again, the turning point was when citizens in their committee uh, really embraced their role as taking the pulse of that community. Uh, and finally, um, I don't think any of this would have happened as easily without uh, someone to guide the process, someone who knows how to facilitate groups uh, and negotiate these kinds of issues. So I think uh, good, objective, credible facilitation is important in this kind of thing. Yeah, I think you're absolutely correct, Bill. You know, it's interesting because on the one hand, it would seem so obvious uh, that uh, good leadership would reach out and take the pulse of those that will be affected by the decision. But that just happens so infrequently. Uh, I know that in my own work, uh, I'm thinking about the work that I do locally uh, where I live. We actually uh, built in a website, uh, a survey uh, mechanism into our local website so that every time a major issue comes up, there's an opportunity to take the pulse, as you, the language you use, take the pulse of those who would be affected. And what, what's interesting is that every time we've used that mechanism, we find that diverse people uh, identify essentially a common objective. Uh, it's very easy to see in the data, there is a way forward, but you have to ask first. And so I would agree with that. Now, you know, I was thinking as you were talking, every time we talk about success, there is a flip side of that coin. So if you could talk a bit about 
an example without identifying it of a community where you worked where the outcome wasn't so successful? That'll give our audience an idea of what the other the other side of the coin looks like. Sure, and, I'm, and this, this example is going to focus really on a number of communities. And um, again, it goes kind of back to this uh, context in Wisconsin um, where uh, in 1999, the state passed a law requiring every municipality in the state to develop and adopt a comprehensive plan within 10 years. Um, and uh, that planning process that was what was uh, established is pretty complex. Uh, it had nine different planning elements, including things like housing and transportation, land use, implementation, um, and, and, and similar kinds of things. But by law, the legislature required that every every plan, every municipal plan, had to be developed based on some kind of a written public participation plan. And that sounds great, except that they did not provide any guidelines uh, uh, as to what that public participation plan should look like or how it should work. Um, there were no methods specified. It was just you have to involve the public. And in the end, that proved, I think, in many cases to be uh, a problem. So, you know, we have well over a thousand jurisdictions in the state of Wisconsin when you consider uh, townships and villages and cities and, and counties, et cetera. And a lot of those smaller communities having to go through this planning uh, lack planning staff. They, they lack professional planning resources on their own staffs. So they had to go out and, and hire planning firms, which was expensive, but they really had no choice. And uh, some of the folks uh, cynically called this, instead of the comprehensive planning law, the full full planning firm employment law, yeah, because it had a lot of truth there. But um, So to satisfy this law, um, planning firms got a, a lot of uh, a lot of business. Uh, working with uh, a lot of these smaller communities. And to, to satisfy the law, uh, especially the public participation law, um, they would develop uh, oftentimes kind of boilerplate public participation tools. Uh, and most common were surveys and listening meetings. Now, I, I worked with a number of these communities, and I saw some of this work from afar. Uh, and at least my sense was that a lot of these surveys were poorly done, uh, in some cases, they were just out not biased. Uh, a lot of the questions were generated by the planning firms themselves, so they were efficient for their own planning purposes, but they weren't necessarily valid in terms of uh, getting at issues that were of concern to the public. Um, the, a lot of the public meetings um, were were not all that well attended by the public for a lot of different reasons. Um, and... Um, in the end, uh, I think a lot of that public participation work um, wasn't all that successful. You know, it, it certainly covered the letter of the law, but it didn't necessarily cover the spirit of the law. And um, in the end, I think we saw some some negative uh, effects of that. So I think as a result of kind of this public participation effort, um, a lot of the public remained pretty much uninformed about the planning process, what the plans were that were finally uh, adopted for their particular communities, or even what their interests were. A lot of local plans didn't reflect public perspectives or address uh, some of the needs that citizens had. Um, 
And town, pol- town boards especially, especially rural town boards, became polarized. Uh, they, were, they had uh, pushed through plans by uh, slim majorities, and there was a lot of conflict that, that emerged around plans that were not popular. Uh, in a lot of cases, a lot of vocal hardliners turned town governments uh, and comprehensive planning into this kind of sustained battle around property rights. Um, and following that, a lot of subsequent election cycles saw a lot of uh, town board turnover, uh, ongoing conflict, and uh, polarization. So new boards would be elected, um, and they would often decide to revise um, uh, unpopular plans <clears throat> where there wasn't really any clear consensus. Uh, and the issue there uh, is that, um, again, a lot of these communities didn't have planning um, resources, so they had to go back and hire planning firms at, at a cost uh, that was quite steep. In fact, the average cost of a comprehensive plan to a community was about $25,000, so this wasn't uh, cheap. Uh, I've worked with a lot of towns, I'd say probably five or six in Dane County, to help them develop uh, their own public participation plan. So they essentially brought me in to do that kind of work. I helped guide them through the process of putting the, the plans together. I helped facilitate some meetings. I helped them develop more rigorous surveys, listening sessions, uh, and conduct focus groups of communities of interest. And in every case in the communities that I work with, um, plans, passports with little conflict, uh, and none of them were changed as time went on. So what I learned from this whole process was that if you're going to get engaged in public participation, do it right um, and reach out to people, use the right methods, uh, look, look, for, look for consensus, try to do it in ways that lower the transaction opportunity costs and lower, lower conflict. And in some cases, doing public participation badly can actually be worse than not doing it all. But in this case, um, you know, I was I was pretty happy with the plans that were developed uh, with the communities I worked with, but uh, that certainly wasn't true for a lot of a lot of the plans that were developed, not just in in the county that I worked in, but I got the same kind of feedback from my colleagues across the state in terms of their participation in public participation planning and some of the some of the outcomes that they saw. Yeah, that's that's those that's really good advice, Bill. I remember one of my students years ago who. Um, talked about the experiences he had in community organizing over the years. And he talked about, you know, always have to be concerned about the residue that's left after an experience, and you don't want to leave a toxic residue. And so uh, a participation effort that turns out negatively uh, leaves obviously a very bad taste in citizens' mouths. And as a consequence, that means that most folks will be less likely to engage in the future based on their past experience. And one of the other things I recall over the years is that oftentimes when there are mandates, uh, funded or unfunded, where it's imposed on a community or locality, it may work elsewhere, but context is everything. And if a community in a locality is not ready for something or an organization is not ready for something, uh, then it feels imposed. And uh, that often happens when sort of the new tool around, whether it be planning or in the case that I ran up against over and over again, when total quality management was the rage 25 years ago, is that an executive would come back and talk about TQM and then would impose it and it would go nowhere. So I think um, 
what you described in that example, I think, uh, applies quite broadly. You know, as you were talking, I was also thinking about the fact, okay, if you distilled what you've learned over the many years of your experience, both the good things and the bad things, uh, what would be some guidelines that you would leave our listeners with in terms of, as you said a few minutes ago, if you're going to do it, do it the right way? Well, um, I've worked with local officials uh, exclusively during the latter part of my career, so the Kind of that's the first thing that I think that comes to mind. Uh, and this is a point that I would make when I would go out throughout the state and talk to people in office. Um, I always would encourage them to see themselves as teachers as well as decision makers. Uh, and a lot of them never really thought about their roles that way, but I would remind them that they're very well positioned to serve that kind of a role. They have a captive audience and that teaching is an absolutely critical leadership role. Uh, they they certainly have some things that they can teach the public, uh, such as how government's supposed to work, what it's supposed to do, uh, and what they're doing to try to make it better. Uh, I also think they're not, have an opportunity to remind the public why their roles as citizens, why their responsibilities and opportunities are are important too, and and to encourage them to stress the difference between politics and between governance, and that good decisions tend to flow out of governance. Um, I would also say that a system where officials serve just as policymakers and citizens just as policy consumers can be changed if we're willing to make different choices about how government works. Um, what criteria do we apply to candidates running for office? Uh, I think it would take some time, certainly patience, commitment, and action, but I think it can be done. So I think people, um, wherever they are, need to be willing to lead from wherever they are. Uh, and to take some risks um, in the process. Um, people have an opportunity to entertain some new ideas about their role as citizens and other kinds of civic issues, uh, to try new things, to lead by example, and to talk to and encourage others to do the same. Um, uh, in all of my years of experience, um, it was clear to me that there is no substitute for effective public engagement if we really want to resolve stubborn community issues. Um, decisions that stand the test of time, I call them sustainable decisions, usually happen when officials understand what the full range of public perception, public views is, and are willing to integrate them into the, into the decisions they make. Um, issues will drag on and conflict will continue when only the interests of those in power are addressed. And we just have so much experience with that collectively, uh, it, it's just, it's just obvious. Um, and I think solid participation isn't hard or complex, uh, and there's really no downside to it, but I think it needs to be done right. It needs to be planned. It can't be something that we just kind of react with. And I think we, we have to understand that politics as governance has existed for uh, a very long time. And in fact, I think it, it defines our present uh, approach to government, but we can absolutely change that. Officials need to expand how they think about their jobs, I said already, you know, leader, teacher, decision maker are not mutually exclusive roles. And I think citizens need to act like citizens, not passengers. Uh, um, our system of government was designed uh, that way. And I think the public needs to, to reevaluate how they, how they evaluate and how they select their leaders. They have every opportunity to do that, um, and they should take the time uh, to do that. Uh, I think the public can be a source of innovation and good ideas if they're approached in the right way and in the right spirit. 
Not all ideas are going to be solid. We know that. Um, but some will be, and they can come from anywhere, and they can come from anyone. But I think finally, uh, in dem democracy works as well as we practice it, and how we practice it is a choice. And as I've been looking over uh, and reflecting on our conversations, a couple of things came to mind. And I, I think some of the things that, that I'm saying here um, might find, sound idealistic. But the fact is that change is just a matter of choice, and it really always has been. I think we would all benefit from finding ways to reevaluate our thinking and our approach toward whatever public or civic roles we take. We are not powerless. Uh, we choose to give our power and in many cases our thinking away to political opportunists. No one is forcing us to do that, but I think we need to stop doing that. I think we need to consider responses to, to big, stubborn public problems that are appropriate given circumstances. Not every problem is going to be solved by the same set of solutions or by this, the same ideology or philosophy or approach. Um, I was uh, looking through a couple of old boxes the other day, and I found an old bumper sticker that really is appropriate, and it says, when the people lead, the leaders will follow. And I, I'm going to get that out and put it on my car because uh, it's, it's probably never more appropriate than it is right now. And I've reminded people, my friends and other people, people I've worked with at Democracy, Democracy is not a spectator sport, and that uh, complaining isn't action. In fact, complaining doesn't really change anything at all. Uh, I think we all need to lead. I think we need to make better choices. And I think we need to act where we are, because I think that's what citizens do. So I mean, those are the kinds of things that, that, that I've kind of reflected on as it's, um, you know, I was reflecting on the, my career and upon our, upon our conversation. Yeah, Bill, as I think about uh, everything you've said, uh, both last time in part one and here today in part two, it just reminds me that some of the most important things in life were pretty much on our own to to learn our way into the skill set. When you think about marriage relationships, when you think about raising a child, and when you think about community work, and when you think about all the citizens who get involved in local affairs and local officials who run for office and are in positions, uh, you know, when we think about the kind of training we go through and education we go through for our jobs and our professions, uh, it's stringent in, in most cases, but not in the domain that we're talking about here. So I think everything that we can learn and apply only helps advance something that's really critical to our way of life, and that's democracy. And so I thank you for uh, shedding so many insights offering so many insights into a domain that doesn't get the kind of attention. Typically, we talk about democracy doesn't work the way it should. You've helped us understand how it can work the way it should. So this is Frank Fury, your host, thanking Bill Rizzo, our guest today, for being on Under the Radar. We'll talk with you next time. Take care.